For our scripture today, we're going to read Romans 7, starting with verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her, her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she may be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were brought by the law did work in our members to bring forth, forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, Sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. That do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, 
warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us today. Thank you for bringing us into this this building as brothers and sisters in the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you don't impute sin to your children, that you took all of our sin and you put it on our Savior, where he cast it away into the depths of the sea and as far from us as the east is from the west. And we can stand before you perfectly righteous, without blame, without spot. We're accepted in your sight. And that gives us the confidence to praise your name, to sing your praises, to honor you. And the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel. And Father, we worship and admire you tonight. Father, we thank you for being sovereign over all things, for causing all things to happen. Nothing happens that you don't have complete control over. Even the evil things that we do, Father, you've ordained that we walk in these things for your, for your good and for your glory. And Father, I'd ask that you bless tonight's services, that they'd be honoring to you, that the word would go out and be received. If there are any ears that are stopped up tonight, Father, if it be your will, we'd ask that you unstop them. If there are any hearts that need to be opened, Father, please open them. And Father, we pray for those in our congregation that are going through hard times and trials, afflictions, tough days ahead. There are tough days ahead for all of us. And Father, it's only by your grace that we'll make them th- make it through them. Father, we, we pray in the Lord's name, Jesus Christ. It's for his sake we pray. Amen. All right. So um, I want to read Romans seven twenty one to you again. It's a verse that's grabbed my attention over the years, and I, I think it's something that every believer here can relate to in their own personal lives. So take a look at Romans 7.21. I find then a law, or a law that is work at work in me, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. These words by Paul here in chapter 7 of Romans, they, they aren't simply doctrinal statements that we might find in a church creed. This is a confession by the apostle about his very own personal struggles as a believer. It's a confession of the war that wages within the heart of God's chosen messenger to the Gentiles and his chosen people. And this is a man that was instrumental to bring in the gospel to all over the world. And here we have him admitting quite honestly the personal struggles that he dealt with 
and what an awful sinner he was. We see him here admitting the struggles to the recipients of his letter. And you have to ask yourself, why would he do such a thing? Why, why would Paul here write about his struggles with sin? I mean, isn't Paul supposed to be a, an example of how a Christian should walk? Isn't he supposed to be a shining example of what it means to be a Christian? And yet here he is dealing with us honestly. In his first letter to Timothy, he, Paul even goes on to say that he viewed himself as a, not just a sinner, but as the chief of sinners. And uh, I find that amazing. But there's been some debate by theologians over the years as to whether Paul was speaking of his experience rather as an unbeliever or a believer. But my own personal opinion is that Paul was speaking as a believer. And I, I think it's made of him, especially by verses 24 and 25. It's a brutally honest section written by Paul here. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the, from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. That's not something an unbeliever writes. That's something a believer writes. And I, I think it's important we keep that as the context. And then ask yourself this. How many preachers do you hear today speaking like this? I haven't heard very many, to be honest with you. In my experience, there are very few honest preachers. There are very few that are honest with the Word of God. And in my opinion, there are very few preachers that are honest with their congregations. They're not honest with God himself, and they're not honest with themselves either. But what I take from this passage is that Paul is being honest here, brutally honest with himself and us as readers. Romans 7 is an honest confession of an honest man. And when we read the scriptures, and it's not enough just to read them and comprehend them, but we need to apply the words of, of, of scripture to the lives of the writers, and when, then we need to think about those words and then apply them to our own lives as well. We need to see how the words of scripture have a practical application in our lives, or at least give us insight into our own lives and our relationships with one another, one another and our relationships with God. And this verse, Romans 7.21, I don't, I don't just view it as a doctrinal statement by Paul. Everybody says the book of Romans is a great doctrinal book, and I agree. But to me, I also see it as a mirror, at least for me. And I want to be honest with all of you as I preach to you. What Paul is portraying here in Scripture is a mirror pointing back at me. It's a mirror that is reflecting to me my own inherent human condition as a believer who is resting in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it exposes to me the enigma that is in all of us who believe. And those of you listening tonight who believe, whether it's here in this building or somewhere over the internet, maybe on the other side of the world, I don't know, and it's also a mirror that's reflecting back to you, the wrestling and the warfare that occurs within your own hearts and minds. And this wrestling is the wrestling of our flesh with the Spirit.
Some people like to say it's the wrestling of our two natures. I may or may not agree with that. I tend to agree with them, I guess. Some, you know, they say it's what we, they call our carnal nature or our spiritual or divine nature. And theologians, that's another debate that goes on. They, they've argued over the word nature and whether or not believers have one or two natures, and I'm not going to get into that tonight. I, I see that as a nonsensical debate. To me, it doesn't matter if we have one nature, two natures, or 53 natures. What matters here, in, in the words of Paul, is that there is a struggle between a regenerated soul, the spirit, and the manifestation of Christ that resides in all of us, and our rotten flesh that we carry around that still greatly desires to sin and rebel against God and his laws and his principles. And this statement by Paul, it's him exposing to us the war, and it's a raging war, this war between his earthly desires and his heavenly aspirations. It's this internal conflict. This internal conflict is the battleground where our natures meet, or in other words, where our flesh and our spirit meet, and the, the spirit. And it doesn't matter to me how you want to phrase it. So the point is it's a war, and it's a war that all of us as believers we find ourselves engaged in this war. In one moment, we're deep in thought and prayer or worship. Our hearts are lit on fire, thinking about the love of God. We come to meet for worship, to hear the gospel, to sing God's praises. We hear about the marvelous mercies of, of the Lord, the mercies of God to sinners. We hear about our God who's in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases. And we read about the suffering saint in the, in the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then we see these prophecies fulfilled in the writings of the New Testament. We're brought to such great highs, such glorious highs. And our joy is so great that when we walk out of this building, sometimes we feel like we're walking on air. Do you ever feel that way? I do all the time. We experience joy when we contemplate on the things of the Lord. We rejoice in his sovereignty, rejoice in his plan of salvation and redemption. And we think such wonderful thoughts about God and his providence for such lowly creatures as ourselves. And then, and then moments later, even within a blink of an eye, our hearts can be cold. Ice cold and consumed with worldly desires and pleasures of the flesh is this true of you I know it's true of me there are times when we're humbled brought down low by the awareness of our sinfulness and we see the righteousness of God we see the righteousness of Christ and we see our failures even as redeemed saints of God we read about his law and see ourselves condemned under if it weren't for Christ's mercies given to us on Calvary. And we're thankful for his grace and mercy and his redemption that we received to the knowledge of our souls through the preaching of the word and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And yet, even within the span of a few hours or minutes, and in my case, even seconds, we may find ourselves puffed up, puffed up with self-righteousness. We completely forget about the mercy that God has extended to us in Christ. 
That's true of me. And if you believe the gospel, I know it's true of you too. Uh, let me give you a few examples about me. Uh, I like to bring some practical examples into my preaching. And I'm going to give you an honest example about myself. I'm going to expose myself here. I'm not going to tell you everything about me because some of my sins are way too great and too too much for me to utter to another soul even, let alone right here behind this pulpit. I don't let anybody completely into my mind because it would be far too embarrassing. And my sins, they're embarrassing to me, such as the state of my awful condition. But let me give you an example, maybe one that's not too embarrassing, but embarrassing nonetheless. And if you need references, you can check with Angie and Cole because they witnessed this. But, uh, you know, there have been times when I've been simply driving along the road, happy, thinking, happy thoughts about the mercies of the Lord given to me in Christ, thinking wonderful thoughts. And then wham, one second later, somebody runs through a red light. <laughs> somebody, somebody gets in my path on, on the highway and does something really stupid. And... Uh, I get angry. I get upset. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Instead of being thankful that the Lord has kept me safe while driving down a highway in a vehicle going, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour, I'm upset. <laughs> My first thoughts are how I'd like an app so that I could disable the other person's vehicle <laughs> rather than the mercies and, and, and wonderful things that the Lord has done for me. And I've said a few choice words as well, ones that I've saved only for my wife and son to hear. Uh, but I'm not going to get into that. But if you need references, like I said, you can talk to Cole or Angie. And don't even get me started about the dry threat at McDonald's. That's another one of my, my issues. Cole's over there probably laughing and smiling because he knows. Um, do you know I actually get upset if I get my order wrong? <laughs> or if there's a long line? Or, you know... I grow impatient and cold in these moments. I sometimes struggle, even today, when I pull up to the drive-thru. It's ridiculous, I know. But I know there's a good likelihood they're going to mess my order up. <laughs> and uh, ever come home from the drive-thru and looking forward to eating a quarter pounder and cheese and you got to make chicken instead? It's, it's not good. <laughs> and I don't like waiting longer than a few minutes for my food. Especially when I'm asked to pull into the parking spot while they serve the people behind me. I can't stand that. I become impatient. And it's these moments, these moments in my life, and it's just an example, just an example out of thousands of times in my life. I am sinning, I'm sinning terribly in these moments. You know, and I laugh about it now but because it's so ridiculous, but it's terrible. My flesh is taking over. I'm willfully sinning against the Lord. And in these moments, I've stopped believing in God's sovereignty. I've stopped thinking about the wonderful mercies and grace that I've received in Christ. I've stopped believing that God works all things for his pleasure. There's a reason why I got to make chicken instead of a quarter pounder, yet I'm upset. It's because I stopped believing that God worked that for his pleasure. And I've stopped being thankful for his providence in my life. Instead, I'm more concerned about my taste buds and my own carnal pleasure. I'm more concerned that they're not going to put pickles on my burger or 
I'm more concerned about my hamburger than I am my creator. That's bad. And I've grown fickle and worldly-minded. You find this is true of you in certain situations? Maybe not about bad drivers or fast food drive throughs You may have great patience in those situations. Those are my trigger points. But what about other areas of your life? Have you ever been angry at your boss because he asked you to work the weekend or some overtime? Have you ever yelled at your spouse or been extremely critical of your spouse, your parents, or your, your children and your siblings over insignificant details? You know, Angie and I, we don't argue often, but when we do, it's usually about something stupid, something totally insignificant, like how we load the dishwasher. I like to load with the forks up, she likes them down. And every time, you know, we just learn to live with each other. But <laughs> uh, And maybe your sins are not as ridiculous as the examples I just gave you. But we all have some serious issues, don't we? And, but they're all ridiculous, too, because we're foolish people. Sometimes we have a glimpse at wisdom. But for much of our lives, we can be pretty foolish. And we all have some very serious sins. All sins are serious, but there are some sins we dare not utter to others. We all carry around our skeletons. We all carry around our private thoughts that only the Lord can see. Private thoughts that we would not want to be seen or heard by anybody else. And that's because we're ashamed. We're ashamed like we're ashamed of who we are, like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And rightfully so. As Jim and I've heard other preachers say this, we're like maggots. We're like maggots squirm, wiggling around on the dunghill trying to prove who the better maggot is. And <laughs> so when I read this passage, this chapter by Paul, I, I see myself in his words. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil was present with me. We got a, we got a bad problem, don't we? <laughs> These words are a perfect mirror to me of my life and the struggles that I daily face, and I mean daily. When I want to good, do good, I find that evil is right there with me, no matter what it is that I do, no matter what. And yet while I'm doing this evil thing, there's a little voice inside my head telling me that this attitude of mine is wrong. That's the war. And it's these things that we do, they're sinful. How terrible was it to be more concerned with pickles, mustard, cheese, and making sure I got the right amount of sesame seeds on my sesame seed bun from McDonald's than it is the things of God? (laughs) Uh, uh, How terrible was it to be more concerned with momentary pleasures than the things that God has done for us and for all eternity? How terrible. And then he brought us into his presence and... We find ourselves in this warfare. We face face this warfare daily as we travel on this journey. And those of us who believe we're all on a spiritual journey, uh, John Bunyan writes about this journey in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of my favorite books. I I know it's Cole's, one of his favorite books. And uh, John Bunyan, or Christian, the, the character in the book, he talks about the things he encountered on his way to the celestial city. And uh, as each of us journey on to this celestial city that is heaven, 
We all experience these oscillations in our hearts and minds. One day we detest the world, yearning for the sweet manifestation of God's love. And the very next day we find ourselves enmeshed in worldly affairs, grasping at earthly pleasures. And we find ourselves more concerned with what condiments someone put on our hot dog at a restaurant than the gospel of Christ. And then we find ourselves disgusted with ourselves for the attitude that we just had. And then we ask ourselves, am I even one of God's children? How can I, who claims to know the truth, be so sinful? How can I do this? Why do I do this? Why do I do the things that I do? And then I, I've often asked myself this, like Paul does here in this chapter, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We live in a state of paradox. We've been touched by Christ's love, but we're stung by worldly hatred. We carry a little wisdom around with us in our hearts and minds, but we also possess a whole lot of folly. We aspire for heavenly mindedness while tethered by earthly desires. And this tension, this dynamic tension between the spiritual and the carnal within us is what Paul's talking about here. This mystery, this conflict within us, it's part of the kingdom's mystery. And here in Romans 7, Paul is talking about the struggle of his fallen human flesh and the new heart has bestowed upon us through Christ's redemption and the indwelling of the Spirit. This tension is not an anomaly, rather it's part of our journey as Christians. We are, we are this way by design. And I take comfort in the fact that this tension is an evidence that we are indeed one of Christ's people. The rest of the world, the ones that don't believe, they don't have this tension. They don't have this warfare raging inside their souls. There's more warfare that goes inside the soul, the soul of a Christian than anywhere else on earth, in my opinion. The rest of the world, they're proud of their sin. They wear it on their sleeves like a badge of honor. Did you ever notice that? Look at, look at the homosexual movement that's going on in this country right now. The world flat out celebrates it by calling it pride. Pride. Look at all the companies with rainbows and on their logos celebrating the embracement of sin. They aren't ashamed. The world's not ashamed. They openly mock God. They mock the scriptures. They call what is evil good. And they call what is good evil. They don't have this tension that we do. Our flesh may crave sin, but our regenerated heart hates it. And so the battle ensues. We walk in light while wrestling with the shadows within us. That's why I've entitled this message, In Shadows of Duality. I even wrote a poem about it, which I'll read to you at the end of the sermon. And these shadows of duality, these tensions within us, they're, they're vital to our understanding that the kingdom of heaven isn't about eradicating our human nature or replacing it entirely with a divine nature. The kingdom of heaven is not about transforming our carnal mind into a spiritual one. It's not about becoming more sanctified or more holy in our lives over time. It's not about becoming a better and better person. It's not about doing more and more good works. 
And while some dishonest preacher may preach that this is so, all their, preach, all their preaching can do for you is, is bring you even more misery and suffering if you're one of God's people. And I sat under a preacher like that. I sat under a couple preachers like that. Uh, and the church I was involved in was obsessed with eradicating the sin that was in their lives. And they talked about their so-called piety quite a bit. They even talked about how they were succeeding in their walk. Do you believe that? <laughs> my pastor at this church, he's, he was over at my house for dinner once, and he sat in my living room, and he said, uh, he said to me, Brandon, how's your piety been lately? Well, I, w- I was foolish. I said, well, it's pretty good. Uh, uh, I now refer to that that pastor, my former pastor of mine, is uh, in John Bunyan style as Mr. Pious. But if we are truly honest with ourselves, we can't say they were good or pious people, can we? (laughs) But I wasn't being honest with myself. I wasn't being honest with God. I wasn't being honest with him. Don't hear a lot of honest talk like that coming out of churches today. They talk about how they are achieving victory over sin, not by Christ's accomplished work, but by their spiritual walk. So if I had been honest that day, what I should have told my pastor was, my piety, my piety it's not very good. How's yours? Uh, and the, this man was a Reformed Baptist, by the way. And all his preaching did for me was uh, make me miserable. And I doubt there was any peace for him either nor to whom he was preaching. There was no peace for me. And another man I encountered on my way to the celestial city, uh, in John Bunyan fashion, I'll I'll call him Mr. Cleaner. He even preached to me in person that uh, if I'm to be holy with the Lord, I need to stop watching TV. That's what he told me. This This man now, he's a pretty famous Christian personality, known all over the world now. And Angie can tell you about the time that I came home after listening to one of his sermons about not watching TV. I came home, and there she was, watching TV. You know what I did? I unplugged that TV. Not a good thing to do. Well, it was not a nice time in the craft household that night. But uh, I, she was angry with me, and rightfully so. But you, but you see, I was trying to win the war that raged inside my soul by striving. By striving to do more and more and more. I was trying to win that war by trying to accomplish the impossible. By trying to stop sinning. Rather than resting in the accomplished work of Christ. And this view that my former church had, that essentially our heavenly walk is about becoming better and better, within ourselves, well, that may seem attractive. It's attractive to theologians and Christians everywhere, even desirable. But it's not the path laid out for us in in the scriptures for us. But rather, if we are to walk rightly, if we are to sojourn successfully to the celestial city, we need to acknowledge the unchanging nature of our flesh and the ongoing war it wages against Christ and his grace. We have a terminal disease. Sin, it's like stage four, stage five cancer. It's terminal. And we'll never, ever achieve a state of sinless distance. We won't come close to it. Not until we put off this body of flesh and join our Savior in heaven.
And our walk is not our walk is about looking to Christ, resting in his finished work, and recognize that we are completely incapable to rescue ourselves from the grip that sin has on our hearts and minds. We are incapable of saving ourselves from ourselves. Only Christ can save us. And indeed, here's the good news. He already has. And he did this through his atoning blood on Calvary. He nailed all of our sins to the cross. All of them, every single one that you'll ever think of, past, present, or future. He nailed every single one. And he did away with them forever. They'll never be brought up again. Your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west. And in God's sight, in his estimation of us, in his constitution of us, we are sinless. But in our own experience, we're rotten. We struggle. We fight against ourselves. We fight against God. And yet, paradoxically, we also rest in his grace. And we rest only enough for the enough t- for our flesh to fight against that grace once more. And this struggle, this warfare that goes on inside us, it's going to continue until the day we die and are released from this body of death. And Paul, as he writes here in this letter, he writes as an honest man. Here we have the greatest of apostles confessing to us who he is. And the Holy Spirit led him to this conclusion, and he writes about this agony within him, the agony that I share Why don't I see this type of preaching today? I mean, we see it here, but I don't see it anywhere else. Maybe a few places, a few bright places in this world. But if if we're going to be like Paul, each of us has to be brought to the same conclusion about who we are. That's the conclusion the Lord's going to bring us to. The Spirit leads us into this mystery, showing us the continuous struggle of these two principles within us. And this constant wrestling reveals to us the depth of our own vileness and the height of Christ's love. As we sink deeper into self-abasement and realize how deep our depravity really goes, we, we rise higher in the knowledge of Christ. And the more I come to know who I am, the more I come to understand what Christ actually did for me. This suffering had to be great because my sin is great. My sins are so great. My debt was so great. There, there was simply no way to repay what the Lord has done for me. And I'm not saying we should sin so that we should know Christ even more. Now, that's not what I'm saying. God forbid, as Paul would say. You know, and, and Paul asks in the previous chapter, chapter 6, shall we, shall we sin so that grace will abound? No, of course not. But if and we do sin... If and when we do sin, and we will sin, grace will abound. Won't it? Won't it not? When we sin, grace abounds so much more. And the more we recognize our darkness, the more radiant and lovely Jesus appears to us. And the more I see my sin, the more I see the importance of the cross. The more I'm brought to the awareness of my depravity, the more I'm brought to the awareness of the riches of his grace. And the Lord teaches us through this continual struggle that, that grace and mercy can be only found in the gospel of Christ. 
It can only be found in his finished work. And while this gospel gives me such great joy, I can still be quite disheartened at times, too. When I'm made aware of my sin, I disappoint myself. I think of the wonderful things the Lord's done for me, but then I act like a foolish and ungrateful, spoiled child. I act like a rebel, and that's because I am a rebel. And this realization of who we are, that can only... That can, that can be especially disheartening if we don't understand the scriptures. We might feel like failures or we aren't good enough. Good enough. However, if we, if we acknowledge this internal battle, we're not admitting defeat. I'm not admitting defeat up here. I, what I'm doing is I'm affirming my need for God's grace. I, I'm claiming God's victory over our sin because victory over sin can never be claimed by what we do. Christ will be, he must be the victor over every battle that wages within you. The kingdom of heaven is not about the cessation of this conflict while we're still in this body of death. And if anything, when we live as believers for a while, we begin to notice this conflict more and more. This, this, this battle, I'm more aware of it now when I, than when I first came to believe. I mean, the warfare just increases. It's at nuclear levels now. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but as we grow older, we grow wiser, and we learn how to navigate this battle even better. We start to lean more and more into his grace. We daily confess our sins to the Lord, to our Lord in prayer. And in our hearts, we kneel before his greatness and confess who we are as sinners. Our need of righteousness, our need of protection from the temptation of sin, and our need for our Savior to deliver us from that which tempts and sometimes seemingly, seemingly devours us. And we confess our struggles to God and to one another. The wisdom of this journey we're on, it lies not in the eradication of our human nature or the sin that's still in our flesh but the wisdom of this journey lies in the recognition of the battle and the submission to the transformative power of grace and in doing so we'll have a growing desire to know and become like Christ the battle's not getting any better this conflict's going to be with us throughout the rest of our earthly lives and if you want proof for that just go talk to some of our members of our congregation who are getting up there in years, 80s, 90s, 100s, ask them if they face struggles with sin all of their lives. I think they'll be the first to tell you that the struggle's still there. So I, I say to all of you listening tonight, let us take courage, be patient with ourselves, understanding that in every struggle and conflict within us, God's grace is at work. He's molding us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let us surrender our battles to the Lord. Let us recognize the Spirit's work within us and be thankful that this warfare is taking place within us and use that along with Christ's victory on Calvary as the basis for our assurance. Augustus Toplady one of, my, one of my favorite authors wrote the following. 
Let me read it to you. Did the Spirit of God ever convince you of sin? Do you see yourself liable to the curse of the law and the just vengeance of God for the innate depravity of your nature and the transgressions of your life? Do you come to Christ humbled and self-condemned, sensible that unless you are clothed with the merits of him, our elder brother, you are ruined and undone, and you can never stand with joy or safety before the Holy Lord God? If so, lift up thy head. Redemption is thine. Thou art in a state of grace. Thou art translated from death to life. Thou art an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. But if you never felt nor desire to feel this work of the Holy, Holy Ghost upon thy heart, this conviction of sin, this penitential faith, all the supposed righteousness of thine own, wherein thou trusted is but a broken reed, a painted sepulcher, and the trappings of a Pharisee. Wise words by our long-departed brother Topweighty. So before I close, I just want to reiterate to you that I'm not saying we should take comfort in sin. Somebody might say that. I'm saying we should take comfort that there is a struggle. Take comfort that there is a battle raging inside our hearts. For if there was no struggle, we're nothing more than Pharisees. All right, here's the poem I want to read to you. And the poem is... Uh, Title of the poem is the same as the sermon, In Shadows of Duality. In shadows of duality, we wander and we strive. A mystery to ourselves, the war within alive. We seek the good, the love, the grace. But evil finds us too. A paradox, a twisted dance, forever to pursue. Warmth and cold, the changing tide within our very core. Exalting self, then brought down low upon the humbled floor. A heart that longs for heaven's touch, yet clings to worldly treasure. Our souls entwined in conflict, seeking balance in this measure. O oh, mystery, the puzzle of our mortal fickle state. A blend of wisdom, folly, and desires we navigate. We press ahead with hopeful hearts, yet lag in hesitation. A paradox, a battle waged within our own creation. Two natures locked in strife within one bosom dwell. A duality so deep, no words could ever tell. As carnal thoughts and grace collide, the war within us waged. We sink in self-abasement. By our vileness, we're engaged. Yet through the darkness, light emerges, and Jesus' love appears. The more we see our tainted selves, the brighter he endears. The mystery of heaven's realm, a paradox unveiled. In this eternal struggle, may love's grace always prevail. And it will always prevail. My mom really liked that poem, and I, I just wanted to share with you tonight. Let, let the struggle that we're on, or that we all deal with, let us, let, us, let us not be led into despair, but into the comforting embrace of Jesus. Remember, he conquered the grave for us. He satisfied God's wrath for us as our substitute. And all of our sins were taken care of, taken care of when he shed his blood. 
And those of us who are God's elect, when we're born into this world, remember he loved us. He loved us with an everlasting love. And there's nothing we can do to lose that love. Nothing. There's nothing that we can do that's going to make him stop loving us. And as far as God is concerned, our, our sins are dead and buried in Christ. He's not imputed our sins to us. The scriptures are clear, aren't they? As I read earlier tonight, Psalm 32, too. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and unto whose spirit there is no guile. And knowing that is our victory over sin. We only have to endure this struggle for a little while longer. And while we continue to endure, we need to let it deepen our dependence on his grace and reinforce our longing for his divine love. And we need not beat ourselves up too much for our failings. We dust ourselves off. We dust ourselves off. We, we sorrow over our sins and then recognize and be thankful that our Lord took the beatings for us. We work to change our behavior and the best we're enabled, not counting our walk as our victory, but counting Christ as our victory. And then live another day. So as we step out into the world this week, let's remember the mystery that we are, carrying within us this tension of mortal and the divine. And let's remember our weakness and our strength, our folly and our wisdom, our struggle and our victory, which is found in Christ Jesus. For it's in acknowledging our own incapacity and clinging to his capacity that we truly understand the sovereign grace of God. And may his grace guide and sustain us as we navigate this journey. May the love and peace of Christ abide with us now and forever. Amen.